0: Good morning, Tapestry Church. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Sean. I am the high school pastor at the Tapestry Church, Richmond. Uh, I get to work with uh, someone who is standing right here, Colin. That's my joy and ple- uh, pleasure to work with him, actually. Uh, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> um, and also, what a privilege it is to share God's word with you this morning, um, it's been a while, I think, and, uh, and so I, I love it, uh, although it requires a lot of work and prep, but I love it. I, do, I love it when I do get the, the opportunity to preach. Um, and I also wanted to take this opportunity to, uh, to thank you, uh, the entire church, all the aunties and uncles and grandmas and grandparents, granddads that have prayed for us as we went off to spring retreat, that have donated uh, financially to the spring retreat. We want to thank you for partnering with us in what God is doing in our ministry We thank you for for praying for us. God indeed showed up in mighty ways, powerful ways, as Colin has mentioned. And and one of the key takeaways that I've heard over and over again from the students was that, that they were reminded, loved and loves them. That the kingdom citizens, as kingdom citizens, that they're loved and known by God. That was one key takeaway that I got from just hearing some of the students' testimonies. So... Um, and it's very fitting uh, to talk about that as we're looking into the text in First Corinthians chapter thirteen, where Paul talks about love and God's love. Um, so uh, without further ado, let's uh, let's dive right in. Um, <clears throat> we have been continuing in this series. Uh, throughout 1 Corinthians talking about some of the issues that has been going on in the Corinthian church and how Apostle Paul continues to address some of the issues and just faces it head on and speaks truth right into that. And um, it's in the midst of him talking about spiritual gifts and proper worship that he talks about love. In all the places that he could talk about love in his letter, he could have began with it, but in, instead he just waits until he talks about, talk, he begins to talk about spiritual gifts and the proper ways of worship that he begins to talk about love. And um, it's, a, it's a familiar text for all of us, really. Um, and it was really difficult for me to prepare as I was kind of reading through the text because it was very familiar to me. And, it was, and I found myself constantly just kind of glancing over the words in the text because I knew and expected what's to come. I knew that love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, love doesn't boast. You know, it goes on, right? And we're, so we, when, we, when we're so familiar with something then it's, it's, it's even more difficult to sort of renew our minds to, to expect something new. But I do encourage you this morning to uh, expect God to speak to you afresh. And it is my prayer and hope that God will speak to you in a new way through this text. Maybe perhaps remind you of things that you've forgotten, uh, show you some new things. Um, so that is, that is my hope and prayer. Um, and as I was reading this text, you know, um, because it was so... Familiar, I was asking God, God, what are some things that, that you're wanting to speak to me about? Um, and as I was reading, my eyes landed on verse 13. I mean, we're going to read the entire text uh, to get chapter together, uh, but um, chapter uh, 13, verse 13, it says, And now these three remain faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Now, we've heard that throughout Sunday school, perhaps through Awana. I mean, growing up uh, in the church, I've heard this. I had to recite it, and I had to memorize it. And whenever I went to summer camps, we, we had to, like, recite it in order to eat, you know? So we'd, like, line up as, as groups, and then, and then the leader would stand up there and sort of test us in our memory. Can you recite this and all that? So we had to memorize a lot of verses along with this one. So we're very familiar with that. But at the same time, as I was wrestling and thinking about this verse— I realized, well, why is Paul saying love is greater than faith and hope? Have you ever thought about that? Maybe, maybe you have. Maybe you haven't. But for me, if you're like me, I haven't. No one has asked me that question. I haven't asked that question. I just took it as is, took it for granted. Yeah, of course, love is greater than faith and hope. But why, though? And how? And why is Paul saying that? I mean, after all, aren't we saved by faith? And Paul is very strong in emphasizing being saved by faith. Is it not through the hope of of the power of the resurrection and the coming kingdom that we're able to endure suffering and hardship in our Christian journey? And Paul is also strong in, in presenting that hope. But why is it that Paul still says love is greater than faith and hope? Indeed, of the three, the love is the greatest. What makes love greater than the other two? Well, first reason, as we see in the text, is because love is the essential quality needed in the exercising of spiritual gifts. Paul writes in uh, in verses 1 to 3, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. According to Paul, without love, spiritual gifts amount to nothing. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, Paul had just taught finished talking about spiritual gifts in the previous chapter and how all are needed in the body of Christ as members of this body of Christ. Certainly to speak in the tongues of angels would be seen as an admirable and superior gift than those who speak in the tongues of men. However, Paul is saying that without love, no matter how honorable no matter how superior speaking in the tongues of angels might be, without love, it is nothing but a random, senseless noise. I mean, it doesn't take much to realize that noisy gongs and clanging cymbals are not music to our ears. There's no melody, nor is there any harmony. It's simply useless noise. Exercising the gift of tongues without love amounts to this kind of useless noise. Strong words by Paul, isn't it? The gifts of speaking in tongue means nothing. It sounds like nothing if one does not have love. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains... Prophetic powers here does not refer to the ability to tell, to tell what's to come in the future, but it's the power to forth tell. It's what Paul is doing to the Corinthian Christians, speaking to the people of God for their upbuilding and encouragement and, through cons- and consolation, and sometimes rebuke. For Paul, this is a more desirable spiritual gift than speaking in tongues, for reasons he will say later on in chapter 14. But despite the prophetic gift being more desirable in Paul's eyes, Paul is saying that without love, it still is nothing. Even if one were to be able to understand all mysteries and knowledge, and Paul is speaking about heavenly mysteries and knowledge, if one were to have so much insight, such depth into know the things of heaven, without love, it's nothing. If one were to have faith to remove mountains, and Paul has in mind Jesus' is saying when he says to his disciples, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, and you tell this mountain to go from this place to that place, it will certainly move. Nothing is impossible if you have faith. And Paul is saying that even if one were to have faith, even if he were to have faith to remove mountains, without love... He's nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up all, my entire body to be burned for hardship, certainly an honorable thing to do, is it not? To give away all we have? To sell all we have for the sake of the poor? It's not an easy task. It's a tall order. You think that even if you do that, if you have no love, you gain nothing. I think of the rich young ruler who went away sad when Jesus told him to give away all he has and follow him to receive eternal life. After all, it was the young rich ruler that came and asked Jesus, what must I do to receive eternal life? And Jesus says, go sell all you have and give it to the poor and follow me. And the young ruler just walked away sad because he had so much wealth giving away all of possession in light of the reward to come, to follow after Christ, one can receive eternal life, as Jesus says. But, Paul is saying, even if you do that and still have no love, you gain nothing. Even if you were to give up your own body, and Paul is speaking about martyrdom here, for the sake of the gospel, for the reward to come in heaven, for the reward and the recognition that you will receive in heaven, if you have no love, you gain nothing. It's all for naught. And it's interesting to see that Paul doesn't mention faith or, or hope as being the essential quality in exercising these gifts. He doesn't say, and if you, have, if you do these things and have not faith or have not hope, he doesn't say that. It repeats it three times, have not love. As a matter of fact, faith actually is mentioned. And love still completes faith. Faith is nothing without love. Because he did say, even if you had faith to remove mountains, without love you are nothing. It amounts to nothing. Verse 3 speaks of hope, receiving reward in heaven after giving up all that one owns or even giving, giving up one's own body. It amounts to nothing if one does not have love. So love is still the essential part of even faith and hope. And that is the reason why love is greater than faith and hope. Because without love, faith and hope are nothing. Now, this message is for us also in the here and now. Not spiritual gifts, but in our ministries, in the things that we do in the church and outside the church, in the way we serve God, in the way we engage and interact with one another. If we have not love, all that amounts to nothing. We gain nothing. As we serve, as we teach Sunday school, as we serve in youth ministry, hop ministry, worship ministry, preaching ministry, if we, if I do not have love, all this is nothing. Despite all the sacrifices we might make, if the essential quality that is love is missing, according to Paul, we gain nothing. So then, how do we know if we have love? I mean, Paul says you have to have love to make something out of these. So how do we know if we have love? We'll hold that thought. We'll come back to it. The second reason why love is greater than faith and hope is because love is the very essence of God. Love is the very essence of God. God. Paul uses a series of descriptors in verses 4 to 7 to talk about what love is. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Now, many of the New Testament commentators speak of how all these adjectives that Paul uses cannot be described or defined apart from, separate from God. These adjectives are theocentric, meaning that these adjectives cannot be described without God being at the center of the the very definition of this, these adjectives. One can't even begin to describe what Paul means by patience and kindness. What what does it mean to be envious or, or not envious or proud? Without God or apart from God, we cannot define these things. And as such, one can literally exchange the word love for God in the text. Maybe some of you have heard this or have done this. God is patient. God is kind. God does not envy. God does not boast. God is not proud. God does not dishonor others. God is not self-seeking. God is not easily angered. God keeps no record of wrongs. God does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. God always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. God never fails. Some of you need to hear that this morning. In the same way, you can replace the word love or God with Jesus. And it works out the same way. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. And the more we learn these characteristics of love, of who God is, the clearer it will become for us whether we have love in us or not. Do you get that? I just answered that question that you've been holding in your head. How do we know if we have love? We know we have love when we, the, as we learn more about these characteristics, about who God is. Because the more we learn these characteristics, the, the clearer it will become for us whether these traits and characteristics are real in us or not. So how are the attributes of God shown here? Paul begins by using the two positives, love is patient, love is kind. Patient and kind. Love is patient. It means to be slow to anger. Certainly God is slow to anger. Old Testament makes it very clear that God is slow to anger with his people. It means to suffer long under provocation without being moved to anger. The word is used to speak of God's patience towards sinners It is is the kind of patience that we find in God who refrains from his wrath for the sake of showing grace and mercy. That's patience. Love is kind, similar to God's character of being slow to anger. This word speaks of God's gracious and hospitable action to undeserving sinners. It's not being nice. Being nice takes us only so far but being kind according to what Paul is saying takes us beyond someone earning our kindness it's to show kindness and hospitality and warmth and sweetness and goodness and generosity to someone who does not deserve it that is God's kindness and after these two first two Love is not. Paul then defines love in the negatives by talking about what love is not. Love, is not, love does not envy. To have, to have envy is to have intense, burning, and boiling negative feelings over another achievement or success. So that whenever I see somebody succeeding, I'm just boiling with envy. It's like, oh man, just, oh, like, why, why can't I be successful like that? Why didn't I do that? Love doesn't envy in that it does not begrudge the status or success or the honor of another, but gladly delights in it for the sake of the other. When we see somebody successful, you say, yes, awesome. God is using you. God is releasing you. Praise God. We celebrate with them for the sake of the other. Love does not boast. To boast, really, is to brag. And as soon as I heard this description, I, I thought about, Our relationship, our love and hate relationship with our social media accounts. We love to brag, don't we? On our social, Instagram stories, Facebook wall posts. We brag about the places we go to. We brag about the places that, things that we eat. We brag about the people we hang out with. We brag about the things that we drink. We brag about the things we get all the while making us feel superior than those who, may ha- who do not have. All the likes and the little hearts that we get m- feeds into the sense of feeling superior or feeling accepted and affirmed by, by the world. But God does not brag. He doesn't need to. He doesn't have Instagrams or Facebook to boast of his status. Because his entire creation proclaims his glory. Love is not proud. The word Paul uses here for being proud is the same word Paul used when he says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Love does not puff oneself up. It is used figuratively to speak of an exaggerated self-conception. Love does not puff up one's own importance. One New Testament scholar asked such a convicting question to Christians how much behavior among believers and even ministers, pastors, is actually designed to impress others with one's own supposed importance? To be 100% honest with you, as pastors, it can be so tempting to think that the number and the size of our church reflects our influence, our success. It's so easy to be tempted into that and make us feel like we're so important. Certainly, Corinthians were full of this. They were puffed up in their thoughts, in their arrogance, in their, in their ways of sin. But God is not. He's everything opposite of being puffed up. God doesn't need to puff himself up to impress others. There is no rival for God Love does not dishonor others. The word dishonor here means lacking integrity or shameful. Paul uses the same word to talk about shameful acts that is done in secret. In the Greek, the the same word is used to refer to shameful parts in the body that needs covering up. Love does not impose one's own freedom, even to the point of being shameful. When others find them, the, the very behavior shameful, love does not impose one's own freedom to do that, to bring shameful acts into the public. Love is not self-seeking. To be self-seeking is to be seeking one's own interest over others' interest. God certainly does not do that. And that is very clearly shown to us as he sends his son for us, undeserving sinners, to die for us. Love is not easily angered. Same, it's a very similar word as being slow to anger, being patient. God is not easily angered. God is not easily provoked to irritation. God is long-suffering. He's slow to anger. He waits patiently for us to turn back to him. God keeps no, love keeps no record of wrongs. The word Paul uses here is the kind of word used in accounting, to count or to calculate. God does not count our sins against us. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. God did not count our sins against us. If he had, he wouldn't have sent his son But instead, he chose not to. He chose to to lavish his love on us through his son. But then, we're human. I mean, we're not God. Let's be real here. How can we not count offenses that are done to us? I mean, people hurt us all the time. We can't forget painful offenses inflicted against us. The more painful the offense, the more difficult to forget or let go. What Paul is saying here is not that we ought to let go and forget all the offenses inflicted on us, but instead he's saying that to love somebody or to show love means that we don't let our pain and suffering dictate how we respond to our offenders. Did you get that? To love means that we don't let our pain and suffering dictate how we respond to our offenders. In other words, the one who loves does not seek to retaliate or act out of their past hurts against the offender. Love doesn't say, I'll pay you back for that wrong. I'm going to get you back. Love doesn't say that. God doesn't say that. I find this quote by a a Christian theologian, Miroslav Wolf, a Yugoslavian uh, theologian. Very powerful. Being in God frees our lives from the tyranny, the unalterable past exercises with the iron fist of time's irreversibility. God doesn't take away our past. God gives it back to us. Fragments gathered, stories reconfigured, selves truly redeemed, people forever reconciled. These words are especially powerful given that Wolf, Himself suffered under persecution under the Yugoslavian Marxist regime for being a Christian. He suffered under persecution for his his faith. And yet he says these words. Paul says, love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. God definitely does not delight in evil. And it's quite hard to really imagine a good loving God delight at wrongdoings that goes against his good intent and purpose. However, we can at times be prone to delighting in evil. What do I mean? What is delighting in evil? Paul is writing to the church during a time where gladiators were a real thing. Christians were living in a city where brute violence was entertainment for people. We have a little bit of that, right? Moreover, let us not forget in the Corinthian church that not only approved but prided themselves for approving this young man who was sleeping with his own stepmother. Love does not rejoice in such evil. But no one in our church rejoices in those things, you might be thinking, well, praise God. It would be absolutely horrendous. To see that happen in our church and to pride ourselves of that, of such evil would be just devastating. Though it may not be to that degree, isn't it also true that some of us sometimes delight in wrongdoings through gossip and rumors We amuse ourselves talking about the wrongdoings of others while also approving of our own selves for not having fallen to such sins. Oh, such and such have such a hard time with that, you know, bad sin that they got in their life. I'm so glad that I don't have to suffer with that or struggle with that. I mean, in a status-seeking culture like Corinth, people rejoiced. They actually rejoiced in other people's wrongdoings because it meant the loss of their good esteem, which on the flip side, made my self-esteem go higher. Because this person is esteemed so badly, now I'm, I'm looking better. So people actually rejoiced in that. Aren't we like the Corinthian church where we're delighted and so amused to hear of another's wrongdoing so that we could poke fun at them? Delighting in evil can show up in so much subtle ways in the church and it could cause contention and division. The enemy has a sly way of really just getting in the church and breaking the unity that God has established in the church. Love does not delight in these things but rejoices with the truth in that it joyfully celebrates with open and honest truth. Truth. It does not celebrate in secret places, it celebrates openly and honestly and for the sake and benefit of the other person who needs to be celebrated. Love rejoices with the truth without any hint of self-interest. The one who loves is genuinely and joyfully glad and celebrating with the other even if there's no benefit whatsoever to oneself. I mean, after all, it's really easy to celebrate with somebody else if there's some benefit for me, right? I'm so glad you got that job. Can you maybe hook me up and get me a connection in the door to that job? Because that job seems pretty good. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. The the NIV translation is quite different from the other English translations where the verse is translated, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And this is actually closer to the original text. What does Paul mean that love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things? Well, Paul, by repeating all things four times, he's saying that there are no limits for the four things that he just mentioned. In other words, there's no limit to what love could bear. There is no limit to its faith. There's no limit to its hope. There's no limit to its endurance. In other words, there are no limits to what God can bear. There are no limits to his faithfulness towards us. There's no limits in his ability to give us hope. There are no limits to what God could endure. And that ought to give us hope and strength to face the day. Because there are no limits in the God we call Abba Father. So this is love. And you might still be asking, well, how do we know if we have this love? How do I know? Here's a simple way to do a good checkup. And it's really simple. Just look at the text. Go to verse 4 and substitute your own name for love. Sean is patient. Sean is kind. Sean does not envy. Sean does not boast. Sean is not proud. And you can't get very far without actually being convicted of these words. I mean, when you put God in there, he looks so good. But when you put your name in there, it looks so bad, right? If we're being honest, very quickly we realize that these descriptions are not so fitting for us. And yet, for some of us, some of these descriptors still might fit for us, might be a glimpse of what we have in our lives, and that's awesome. Because that means that you're becoming more like Christ. That means you're becoming more like God. You're resembling more and more of God's love. And let it be our goal to exemplify all these descriptors in our lives. To be patient like God is. To be kind like God is. To be not envious of someone who succeeds and gets ahead of us like God is. After all, our journey as disciples of Jesus Christ is to become more like him, is it not? And as more and more of these descriptors of love become more true and applicable to us, we will know that we are growing as his disciples. After all, Jesus himself said, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. By this you will, everyone will know that you are my disciples if. You love one another. And if we find ourselves deeply convicted by putting our name in these verses, saying, I'm not patient, I'm not kind, I'm envious, I'm boastful, I'm arrogant, I'm puffed up, then we have much work to do. And it begins on our knees, repenting to God and asking God for forgiveness, for not having loved the way that He has shown love to us. And from there, asking God to strengthen us to be loving toward those whom he brings into our path in the church, outside the church, in our workplaces, in our schools, in the marketplaces, in our coffee shops, on the road when we drive. The third reason why love is greater than faith and hope is because love never ends. Verse 8, it says, love never fails in the NIV. Again, the NIV, NIV rendering of this Greek word is a little bit lacking because, although it is correct, it's lacking because the verbs that Paul uses following that verse, how prophecies will cease, tongues will be stilled or stopped, knowledge will pass away, literally the same word as ceasing, same as prophecies. Because these are time indicators that they will soon come to an end, it's better to render the word as love never ends. Even though all these things might end, love will never end. Because when completeness comes, all that is incomplete, the gift of speaking in tongues, prophecy, knowledge, all of these will all disappear because they're incomplete and partial. Just as the characteristics of a childhood disappears when one becomes an adult, the partial will disappear when Jesus comes. And by completeness, Paul is saying, Jesus. When Jesus comes back, all the things that are imperfect and partial will disappear and fade away because Jesus, who is perfect and complete, is here. Love will not cease. It will not be stilled. It will not pass away. Love will continue on into eternity just as God is eternal himself. But what about faith and hope? What about them? Don't they also go into eternity? And for this, I like what Anthony Thistleton, uh, one of the New Testament scholars, says about in answering that. He says, faith and hope abide also. But in forms in which faith becomes assimilated into sight and hope absorbed into the perfect, thus, in a subtle sense, love alone abides forever in the form in which Christ and the cross has revealed it. What Thistleton is saying is that when Jesus comes, faith will no longer be needed. It will take another form because we have now seen him. the object of faith, our faith will be right in front of our eyes. So the faith that we have in him will take a different form. Same with hope. Hope will take, and be, take a different form and be absorbed into his kingdom because the, his kingdom is what we hope for. The coming kingdom is what we hope for. And the resurrection would have happened when Jesus returns. But love, but love continues because Jesus is love. However imperfect our love might be, it takes a different form and it resides in between us in our relationship with God and in the presence of God. God whose whose very essence is love goes right into eternity and that's why love never ends. So what now? What difference does it make knowing all this? I mean, these are cool things to sort of recite and utter but stopping at simply knowing the definition of love would be completely against what Apostle Paul had intended for the Corinthians. And certainly for us, the Tapestry Church in Richmond. Knowing this true love is an invitation to participate in the love of God he has for each member of his body. As one Christian ethics professor has put it quite well, Christian love is unintelligible except as a participation in the life of the one who reveals himself to us as love. I'm going to to say that again. Christian love is unintelligible except as a participation in the life of the one who reveals himself to us as love. If we're serious about bringing and making this love, God's love, intelligible to the people around us, to the world around us that does not yet know the love of God? If we're really serious about that, then we are to participate in this love. So, Tapestry Church, what would that look like for you? Let us be people who are slow to anger and show kindness when our brothers or sisters are undeserving of it, even when they don't deserve our kindness and patience, let us still choose to extend our patience and kindness, identifying ourselves with God who is slow to anger with us. Let us not begrudge the status and the success and honor of another person. Let us not be people who brag about one's own status for a stronger sense of affirmation, acceptance, or superiority. Let us not be puffed up in our own self-imposed importance. Let us not behave dishonorably and shamefully toward one another. Let us be looking to the interests of others when we engage with one another because we're so quick and it's so easy to look after our own self-interest. It's going to be harder to do the other way. But let us live in such a way that we seek the interest of others. Let us not be quickly provoked to irritation, or better yet, let us not provoke one another to irritation. Even when people do offend us and lead us to anger, let us still love by not repaying their evil against them. Not holding a grudge and saying, I'm going to repay that person someday when I get the chance. But instead, choosing to let go and absolve the offense. Let us not rejoice over wrongdoings of others, but instead celebrate joyfully with the truth. Let us love by covering one another of all the offenses committed against us. May there be no limits to our faith and hope in the Lord in the way we love one another. Which will enable us to endure all things. Even when persecution and suffering is brought upon us by our love. Let's pray. God, this is so much easier said than done. We confess that we, out of our own strength, can't do it. I can't do it. God, we need you to help us. We need you so desperately to help us understand your love and how much you have lavished that on us. We need you to teach us how to participate in your love. So come, Holy Spirit. Empower us and equip us to love our own brothers and sisters and all those who may not know your love yet in this world. Send us out from this place to love as you have loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.